Even from the start, we understood, I understood that this was historically complicated, consequential, and something that the administration of the United States had embarked on for which there was really no understanding about how we'd get out of it. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome. With me today is Carol Rosenberg, a senior journalist at the New York Times, which she joined in 2019 with the generous support of the Pulitzer Center. Prior to that, she was a reporter for the Miami Herald. She is the winner of the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, the Edward Willis Scripps Award, and recently the American Bar Association's Silver Gavel Award for outstanding coverage of jurisprudence. Carol Rosenberg was also part of the team in 2000 on the Miami Herald that won a Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of the Alien Gonzalez story about the young boy whose mother drowned en route to the United States from Cuba, who was placed with his relatives in Florida and then returned by the Clinton administration to his father in Cuba. Since 2001, Carol Rosenberg has been covering Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility, where the United States placed many of its foreign captives in the war on terror. It is because of Carol Rosenberg's work that we have seen into Guantanamo day after day, month after month, and year after year, and decade after decade. It is, as we will discuss, the never-ending assignment. Welcome, Carol. Thank you so much. I should say at the outset that we've known each other for a long time. So we've had a conversation now for more than a decade and a half. And so little has changed in terms of the questions you and I ask one another and, um, and the guidance I look for weekly and sometimes daily in your articles and in your tweets. But before we get to Guantanamo, I want to talk a little bit about your earlier career, which many people might not know about. You grew up in West Hartford. You attended the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And then... While at school, I decided to become a journalist. I supported myself somewhat in college by being a stringer with UPI, the news agency, which ultimately, a couple of years after graduation, five years after graduation, six years after graduation, sent me to the Middle East, sent me to Jerusalem as a correspondent. And I had done my training as a journalist in the intervening years in Massachusetts, Connecticut, in New England, doing local reporting, court reporting, cops and robbers reporting, and then was to Jerusalem by UPI. That, in a sense, I guess, put me on the course to Guantanamo. But in a way, it's kind of ironic because at the time, it was the 80s, where I really wanted to go was Moscow. The Cold War was on. That seemed to be the story. And if anyone aspiring to be a foreign correspondent, Moscow seemed really, you know, like the way to go. But one day, UPI had an opening. I got called in by the foreign editor and offered to go to Jerusalem. And it was a overseas posting. And I went in 1987 and didn't come back for seven more years. People know me as the Guantanamo reporter, as the person who happened to be there on the day the Bush administration sent 20 men to Camp X-Ray to start this experiment in offshore detention and justice. For years, what happened before that day set me up for that moment. That moment, as I was sitting on the airstrip, watching the prisoners come in, had a background of having worked in the Middle East, traveled to a couple dozen countries, covered several wars, both ours and the wars over there. And it was formative. No, I think that's right. I think there's a sense that you just have to figure out how to step into your own shoes. And there is something about your covering Guantanamo that your prior seven years had prepared you for. I had covered conflict, fundamental Islam, and was aware of the issues that would come to a head on 9-11. So that when people say, as you may recall, why do they hate us? 
it was obvious to anyone who'd spent time over there why they hated us. Had you reported from Iraq about Saddam Hussein, right? I went into Iraq before, uh, it, it was Operation Desert Shield during yep. the period when there was the buildup and covered Iraq. Actually, when they first opened Iraq after the human shields, if you remember the Saddam Hussein's policy was they took the Westerners and they put them in strategic installations. Right military sites, communication sites, and said, we are hosting you, you are our guests. These were the Westerners who lived in Iraq at the time, right before the crisis. And I got a visa, and when I went in, the human shield policy was underway, got this visa, went to cover the Iraqi side of this conflict, but got on an airplane and wasn't sure exactly when I'd be able to leave. Obviously, that happened at Gitmo and lasted a lot longer, but we went in, and when I arrived at Baghdad International Airport, they had made a policy that day to let all the human shields go. And as I walked around the airport, there were all of these people that had been props of the Hussein regime getting on airplanes and flying out, including a little boy who they had brought to Saddam who had like patted his head live on television and outraged everyone that they were using these children. And I remember I hadn't even left the airport. I had my notebook and I was interviewing these people as they were going. And my first story out of Baghdad was, you know, they had let the human shields go and easy to report it because it was like right there in front of me. And I had done some overseas work, but what became the issue that day and would become the issue for the rest of my career was how to file it and how to get that story out. And you did. Of course. <laughs> and that was, by the way, September 1st, 1990. And that was my first day at the Miami Herald as a staff reporter. I had been a stringer until that point. So my first staff byline at the Miami Herald for 30 years was in Baghdad. You know, that's interesting because I was thinking you referred earlier to your prior career setting you up for Guantanamo. And I was thinking about that first day that the detainees arrived, which you described to me so vividly and so generously when I was writing The Least Worst Place. And you talked about the responsibility you felt on your shoulders because there were no cameras, no cameras were allowed, there was a scant press presence. Do you wanna just remind our readers what you meant by the responsibility that was placed on you that day? Maybe time has changed my view of it, but it was like both, you know, a burden and, I don't want to say pleasure, but a burden. And I realized that this moment, sitting there at the Guantanamo airstrip, looking out from a little patch of dirt onto the cargo plane, that this was going to be a writer's story, that there were going to be, and there were even at that moment, it was under embargo. We were told we could take notes, observe, cover, and would ultimately be allowed to write up the arrival of the first 20 men. But the photographer I was with was forbidden to shoot it. And this was the start of something that nobody knew where it was going to go. And I remember vividly thinking, the only way the world is going to see it is through the words we write here. I wrote a pool report that day, and I think I gave it to you. And I remember being like, absolutely concerned with getting the minutest of detail. When the first man in an orange jumpsuit came off that plane, the time, what do you look like? Oh, the Marines handled him. You know, people think that they saw those men come off that plane. They think that they saw men in orange jumpsuits with baby blue surgical masks and noise canceling, like crudely made noise canceling headphones and goggles that had been blacked out on their faces. And they were shackled at the wrists with inside like mittens. And they were shackled at the ankles and they came off those planes in tiny steps with a marine on each side, were loaded on a bus and sent to Camp X-Ray. And people think they saw it. And the reason they think they saw it is because they read our words. There were no pictures of that moment. About 10 days later, photos would come out of men on their knees in a cage at Guantanamo Bay. And that would be the first official military glimpse of the prisoners. And it was a picture that was you know, reviled as torture. But back to that moment, I realized we were embarking on something that was historic, that the photographers weren't going to be allowed to photograph it, 
And this may be the last purely, and I think it proved to be, the last purely writer's story of my career. TV was happening then, but forbidden under the control of the military. Photography would become incredibly important a couple of years later at Abu Ghraib. But at Guantanamo Bay in January 2002, what people saw, what people think they saw, what people understood went on was through words. And it just didn't happen anymore. I did feel the responsibility to tell that story. I felt the responsibility to stay. So I had an editor who believed this was a critically important story in our hemisphere for which we would both work out later. There was no exit strategy, no way to reverse it. You pick up men and move them 8,000 miles and put them in cages in Cuba, starting off in Afghanistan or in some instances captured in Thailand, brought to Afghanistan and then to Cuba. How do you undo that? Even from the start, we understood, I understood that this was historically complicated, consequential, and something that the administration of the United States had embarked on for which there was really no understanding about how we'd get out of it. Yeah, and I want to come back to that because I think this phrase, there were no pictures for that day, in a way, even though there have been pictures between then and now, in a way, we're still reliant on your words to tell us what's happening, what it looks like, what it feel like. The attempt to keep Guantanamo under a veil, have you feel like that has changed very much over the past however many years, 18 years? I think it ebbs and flows. I mean, right now, as we know, the, the, the focus of the reporting, because they've completely blacked out the ability to go and look at the 2020 version of Camp X-Ray, which is far more comfortable prison buildings. But what's going on now and what the focus is, is our court proceedings that people also don't see. So once again, I find myself these days sitting in hearings covering the 9-11 Capitol case, if it gets started, the coal hearings, which, you know, I was the only reporter who covered the USS Cole hearings and have covered the USS Cole case, which is a Capitol case. And it's, in a way, when I'm covering the Cole hearings, is like being that first day at Guantanamo. What people know about what's going to happen is what they read and what I tell them. And one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about today was some of the things you've introduced into the toolbox of journalists. And one of those things are your tweets from the courtroom. I mean, it really was, to my knowledge, a novelty to be in a place where nobody could see, nobody could know, we weren't going to get the transcripts, and to just start tweeting so that people knew what was going on. And you can elaborate on that. But what's interesting about it is that that technique started to affect other journalists in other places, notably here in the Attila case in the Southern District of New York by Adam Klasfeld, but in a lot of places, and you started to see it. So it, it was kind of um, a new thing that you introduced. And Well, first of all, not from the courtroom. Right. I knew that as I said it. <laughs> or, no, no, no. They strip you of all your electronic gear as you go to the courtroom. But we have a media room that's very close to the courtroom in this just ramshackle disgrace of a building that used to be a hangar where I can watch on a flat screen the proceedings on a 40-second delay. And in that setting, we got permission to go live with the tweets. Can't broadcast it, can't tape it, can't take pictures of it. But the reporting of the tweets, um, and, I, and I'd, I'd love to talk about it. First of all, you know, I started off at UPI where I did bulletin style reporting, little bits at a time. So I think that when Twitter came along, I saw it for not the commentary and the you know, ability to trash people that is what Twitter is, seems to be used for now, but as a way of communicating what's going on in bytes. They call it live tweeting. And you know Spencer Ackerman. Yes, Spencer Ackerman, senior national security reporter for the Daily Beast. Spencer Ackerman came down to Gitmo once to take a look at the hearings and I came back from the courtroom and he was sitting there and he had done this. He had decided that he was going to do some stream tweeting. And I looked at it and I looked at him and I thought about it and I thought there is so much information that goes into my notebook. There are so many details that you, know, you and I will chew over for hours and that there's a subset of the American population that would be interested in the kind of moment to moment or 
consequential moments of a day's hearings that I thought, this is a way to express it. This is a way to communicate with a subset of my readers. You know, I once had a colleague turn to me at Get Moment and say, I'm just not interested in that level of detail as I was trying to figure something out. And I thought, I'm always interested in that level of detail. It's that level of detail that makes it, A, such an interesting place, explains why it's so different, and allows you to try to take people there. You know, Don't read it if you're not interested in that level of detail. The thing about the tweeting is, I started it as an experiment, and I found that there were people who were drawn to it. Now, the lawyers who can't make it to Gitmo, who wonder what's going on in court today, say, well, we'll just go see what Carol's tweeting. That, that sort of makes sense. That's right. Um, the other journalists, this came as a surprise, the other journalists who don't want to schlep down there, but need to keep an eye on it before the transcripts come out later that day or the next day, <laughs> do the same thing. <laughs> it's like, like I'm, I'm the advance party at the Miami Herald. I was the advance party for the national journalists going down there to figure out what they thought they should write. But the really surprising part were the families who followed. And I got two sets of families who followed. The 9-11 and USS Cole victim family members, the people who either were wounded those days in those Al-Qaeda attacks or who were representing people who died that day, wanted that level of detail. Some of them would go to Gitmo occasionally. Um, there was a woman who lived in Manhattan named Rita Lazar. She lost her brother in the World Trade Center. He's one of those 9-11 heroes. He refused to leave the building because his colleague used a wheelchair and his colleague couldn't get out of the building. And so the two men stayed together as the World Trade Center collapsed. And Rita, who turned out to be this rabid anti-war activist, would sit in her apartment, and she's passed away, um, would sit in her apartment in Manhattan and a big screen as her eyes were failing and watch the tweets. And she said, called me up at one point and she said, oh, Carol, thank you, darling, for doing this. I feel like I'm there and I don't even leave until there's a recess to go to the bathroom. And, and, I, and I realized that Rita thought the tweets were real time popping up and disappearing. And I had to send another friend of hers over to her house to explain to her how to use Twitter. But for years, as I was trying to decide, do I tweet today or do I go to court? Do I give this level of detail or don't I? I would think, well, Rita's sitting there in Manhattan and she wants to know what's going on. And so I'm gonna tweet for all the Rita's. I know that other people are watching it with that level of detail because they tell me they are. But I also know that family members of some of the defendants are watching in Europe, in the Middle East. You know, Twitter is a global communication device. And so those are level of detail that you also wanna communicate for the people whose lives are at stake or freedom is at stake. And I've heard from them. So the beauty of Twitter is it allows me to give a running journalistic account of what's going on in a place that most people can't go. So yeah, I take tweeting seriously. I get to describe, for example, you know, the, this is a court like no other. And the court security officer and judge have essentially a mute button where they can prevent the public from hearing what was said because the audio of the court hearings emerges to the public, to the, to the spectators gallery and back, to the video room where I watch it on a 40 second delay. So if somebody in court says something that's classified, they can push the button and mute it. And we know that there was the potential for what they call a spill. And I can sit in my office at Gitmo and notify the people that this has just happened. Eventually, they gave me a copy of the slide that they put up on the screen to show that it's suddenly been turned into a security session. But it gives people the immediacy and the understanding in very tiny incremental ways that this is a court like no other. What's interesting is that have, has there been any pushback, any talking tos, any whispers about a policy that would say no tweeting from officials? 
it's surprising that you can continue to tweet report when there's so much concern about not having access to the media, that entire conversation. What, how I'm you certain that there are members of the intelligence community who think it should be stopped. I am absolutely certain because, you know, there is the genie out of the bottle kind of aspect of this. We've had hearings that were held in public in which I've tweeted the details. And when the public transcript of that public hearing came out, they would be pockmarked with black redactions of information that shouldn't have been said. And we even challenged it. You know, uh, Dave Schultz, the press freedom lawyer in New York, filed a, a legal filing challenging their ability to do redactions because they had done it so promiscuously on one particular hearing and attached my tweets to show just the level of detail that they were trying to disappear. The judge didn't rule in our favor, but the prosecution did go back and have them redact a little less, you know, become a little bit more exacting in the numbers that it covered up. But the flip side of that is there are people in the military on that base who absolutely rely on those tweets, to my surprise. You know, 6,000 people live at Guantanamo. The spectators gallery at the back of the court has room for maybe 60, I should count it, 48 maybe. Um, and those are mostly people who are brought in on planes from outside and over at the prison and over at the base and around what are essentially the barracks, people know that if they want to figure out, is the hearing still going on? When what time does the hearing start? What is going on over in the court? They go to my Twitter screen. There was a uh, Navy captain an 06, who was the lawyer for the prison. He was the SJA, the legal advisor to the prison commander. And what uh, year are we talking? Do we know? What era of Guantanamo? Six, eight years ago, six years ago. I, I, if you gave me time, I could think about it. That's been a long time. Um, and, as, and this was not a man who I particularly got along with very well. He did not like to do interviews. He would vanish when there were media opportunities and i knew for a fact complained behind my back that you know my questions were too hard and that my insistence on answers was too profound but not my biggest ally and this particular lawyer was leaving and i came around the hangar uh, on one of his last days and i sort of got him in the corner and chatted and you know wished him good luck and you know, it was, a, it was a nice enough conversation. And he told me something which absolutely floored me, which was that at an earlier hearing, this man was supposed to be called to testify. And the people at the prison never wanted to be called to the court to testify because then they would be forced to answer the questions that the judge and the lawyers posed. I, of course, love it when people like that are forced to testify because they're forced to answer the questions that the public should be allowed to know. So there was a point at which he was being called. I can't even remember what the issue was. And when you go to court to testify at Guantanamo, depending on the year, you put on your nice uniform as opposed to your battle dress. And that was the year when they put on their, you know, nice uniforms, the office attire that they never wore down there. And the captain was sitting in his office and had my Twitter feed up and had come to work in the clothes waiting to find out when he was going to have to leave the prison, take the trip across space, and wait at Camp Justice to be called into the courtroom. When I tweeted that the judge had decided that we wouldn't hear testimony from Captain so-and-so today, and maybe tomorrow. And he told me he got up, went, and changed back into his camels, into his battle dress. And I looked at him and I said, based on a tweet? And he said, well, yeah. I said, you changed based on a tweet? You didn't pay, pick up the phone and make a call? And he's like, no, your Twitter streams just tells me what's going on. It was like the highest endorsement one could imagine. But the bottom line is at the end of it, I said to him, you know, Captain, I would have picked up the phone and made a second call. I would have gotten a second source before I changed. And he just looked at me and it was a real validation of what I did. And it really explained to me the importance of being the record keeper, not just for the world, but on that base, that people want to know what's going on in the court, and I tell them. Yeah, and there's another piece of that, which is that the rotation of people at Guantanamo, not the detainees, the rotation of the officers, the staff, the administration, the medical people, that has been constant since the very beginning, but not you. You're there. 
and you've been there since the beginning. And so one of the reasons that in addition to the granularity of your reporting and the constancy and consistency of it is also the fact that you know what you're talking about. You're not going to come in and say, oh, this seems unusual if it's actually not unusual if you've been there for the past 18 years. Correct? Wouldn't that a thing that makes me very a thing that makes me very unpopular? Yes. Well, it also makes you very popular. It's both. It makes you essential and not popular. Nobody down there wants to hear that this wasn't the way it was done for the previous 10 years. They want to believe that what they're doing is the way it's always been done or the only way it's been done or, you know, people, when I tell them, we watch them be taken off of planes and put on buses. We watched people be led with towels around their middle in shackles into open air showers, which by the way, you know, had some privacy. We didn't see them showering. Um, But we watched the process of in processing that was both intimate and crude. They don't believe it because right now they're so obsessed with you not seeing anything. They can't imagine that we saw many things, not everything, but many things. So they're kind of Three things that you have to cover at Guantanamo and telling me if there's more. One is just the organization of it. Who's in charge, what's happened over time, what the procedures are, how it looks, how the food gets there, etc. And then there's the detainees and their stories, who they are, how many have left, and just, you know, what's going on with their lives, all of their stories. And then there's the story of the military commissions. So it's actually, you know, three very different stories that overlapping and collapse with one another's. And these days, a lot of what you write about is about the military commissions. Correct. Which, of course, cannot happen without the detainees. But I know one of the things that people have been interested in asking you is, how do you write about the detainees? So first of all, the military commissions gives you a window into all sorts of things on that list. The military commissions lets you look inside the prison. When I say that people who are called over from the prison to testify under oath are forced to answer questions, they answer the questions they won't take from me. The the prime example was the period when there was a bit of a revolt against female guards in the prison for the former CIA guys. People in the prison just wouldn't talk about how they had used women in the past, and we knew a little bit about it through observation, but people were called over from the prison and required to account for themselves. So that's one. Two is the military commissions allows you to lay eyes on prisoners that was first begun, as you may recall, with the combatant status review tribunals. The Mm -hmm. status hearings was the first time we actually were allowed to see a prisoner brought into a room, shackled to the floor, and explain himself, speak, tell his side of the story, or what he believed his side of the story, his version. Um, But now in court, you have prisoners. Now there's only eight of them you know, in the process of the 40, but they are some of the best known prisoners. And we've had others from the prison come over to testify as witnesses uh, in one or two occasions. And so you get to see them. So it gives you a window into the prisoners. The military commissions gives these, these men who are accused of war crimes, defense lawyers paid by UNI, um, the, you know, military and civilian lawyers who are employed by the Department of Defense, to speak for them, to tell their stories, to help represent their versions. So the commissions give you a window into operations at the prison. They give you a window into the lives in the prison. They give you a window into the stories of the prisoners. The military commissions offers you a window into all sorts of aspects of Guantanamo, which I believe is why the prison leadership dislikes the military commission so much. They don't like being forced to be accountable. They don't like the reporters coming down and hearing them have to explain themselves or justify policy or defend practice. The other story I wanted to mention, which to me is in a way, I don't want to say the fun part, but an important part of my coverage because, you know, I sort of see this as small town beat reporting. And one of the things that I could do is Guantanamo the base and life on Guantanamo the base with greater and lesser success, depending on you know, the mood of the commander of the base who has nothing to do with the prison. But this is a small town America with 6,000 people with a McDonald's and a baseball field and scuba diving and obviously bars and a bowling alley and a golf course, elementary school, small community hospital, and on one end, a prison zone. And so 
Guantanamo itself, behind a Cuban minefield in Southeast Cuba, is like this legacy of time gone by in the US military, in the US Navy, of American projection of force around the world, which is one of the most curious and both normal and abnormal places on earth. And when I can write about that, when I can report about that, it is a relief and an alternative to the story that it's one big prison, which it isn't. The story that it's one big prison in court, which it isn't. The story that it's a scary place with terrorists and soldiers called up from the National Guard who quake in fear, which it isn't. I mean, those guardsmen who come for nine month tours do their four or five days shifts and spend the rest of the time when it's not the coronavirus and they're restricted to quarters, learning to scuba dive, going on fishing trips, horsing around, drinking in the bars, unless the Admiral decides that they shouldn't be drinking this month, um, doing running races, complaining about the townies, uh, living a weird life away from their families in this nine month tour in the Caribbean, which some of them just simply adore. And then on the other side, uh, the other part of the population are the people who move down there with their kids and their dogs and their cars and their household belongings and spend three years there on uh, as Navy families or on government contracts or as school teachers or running the scuba shop or whatever in this small town America. And those who grew up in rural settings in America, joined the military and maybe even retired in the military, adore it. And so there are many sides of Guantanamo. And I like writing about those other sides of Guantanamo as well, because it isn't 40 men in a prison guarded by 1800 troops. It's a little town with all sorts of, you know, it, it has a cemetery. Recently went to go take pictures of the cemetery for the New York Times and the de deputy, the executive officer, the number two in charge of the base decided the media couldn't see the cemetery. Nobody knows why, I've done stories on the cemetery, but it also has, all of that dynamic of you know small town power, the people who can bestow and the people who can be trashed, and for some reason the media and the people who are at the, you know, it's not like I'm complaining, but it's been a sort of a rough period to be a reporter down there. The leadership at the moment of the prison and the base really would rather be left alone to their own devices without anybody asking questions or watching them, and that's not been true the whole time. This is a particularly dark period. You know, it's interesting. I was wondering if there were one story that you could cover from Guantanamo that you haven't been able to cover enough, if they would just say, you know what, Carol, we're going to give you one chance. We're going to just say, yes, you have one story that you just really want to write that we've just made it impossible for you to write, or you haven't even asked because you knew it was impossible. What would it be? Would it be Camp Seven? I'm just curious. Camp Seven. It would be Camp Seven. You know, I asked. So tell us what Camp Seven is. Camp Seven was is a prison uh, within the prison zone that is uh, they say is classified. Its location is supposedly classified. Its contents are classified, and it contains the uh, 14 former CIA prisoners who were held in the black sites, the secret overseas prison network that the Bush administration created after 9/11 to. Um, I'm putting up little, you know, quote symbols, enhance, interrogate, high value detainees captured in the war on terror. What they did was they tortured them. The Times has made a policy that says what went on in those prisons was torture. And so we are allowed to say these men were tortured. We don't have to quibble with it. We're not looking at the legal. Not everybody was tortured. Not a, People were tortured all the time, but torture did go on. And what happened in these prisons was men were disappeared into CIA black sites, which were crude lockups and not always actual prison buildings, sounds like, sometimes basements, things that were transformed into, frankly, at times sounded like dungeons. And they were hidden from the Red Cross, were not allowed attorneys, meaning when they were hidden from the Red Cross, there was not even acknowledgement that they were in US custody. They were disappeared for three and four years and taken from country to country as countries allowed the CIA to have these sites and then withdrew permission and were 
interrogated, in some instances waterboarded, kept in the dark, you know, in some instances didn't see sunlight for a year. We learned through hearings that there was a constant shuttle of debriefers and analysts and interrogators visiting these sites, pulling these people out of their cells and questioning them over and over and over again, initially to find the sleeper cells, to find the next 9-11. And at some point to find Osama bin Laden, because there was this, we're going to get him justice element to the black sites. And then at various times, as this very strange kind of sociology, soft science lab to try to like understand the mind of radical Islam, terrorists, violence, uh, you name it, what they were probing for. But the people who ran it, the people who guarded it, the countries where they were kept, although we seem to know where all of them were, I'm still not 100% sure all the countries have been exposed, all of that is still classified. And the reason it's classified is the people who did it have protection. We promised the countries that hosted us that we would never admit that they hosted us. And the claim is that everything that we did to them, all of the techniques approved enhanced interrogation techniques have been disclosed, but there are other things that went on in there, presumably, that we still don't know about. All of those men, when it came time to shut down that network and bring them to Guantanamo, the worst of the worst, truly, in the minds of the American government, the people who they considered the most high value, they didn't take them and insert them into the detention center, the prison operations that they'd been showing the world for the previous five years. They didn't integrate them into the military detention center that was so proud of its transparency and its humanity. They put them in a secret site in the hills of Guantanamo. Uh, hills isn't quite right, but you know, not on a main road in a section where, as I understand it, there used to be bunkers that contained armaments, missiles, explosives, cleaned up, built, and put them in this prison called Camp 7. Camp 7 is a, a few lawyers have been allowed to go there with court order, and they've been taken in blackout vans so they can't see the road. There's a unit called Task Force Platinum of guards, of soldiers, of military police who are assigned to it. It's about a 120 member, police company, of which only a percentage actually report to Camp 7 and work the um, tiers. There's been a lot of discussion about its conditions, about how it seems to have been thrown together when it was built. You know, there have been comments about how it's sliding down a hill, how doors get jammed, how the structure is failing and they periodically shore it up. There have been requests in Congress for $69 million to replace it. It is this mysterious two cell block prison that contains Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the accused mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. Um, Abu Zubaydah, the person who the CIA experimented on first and invented these enhanced interrogation techniques, waterboarding, nude, you know, being confined, being stripped naked and put into essentially a coffin to disturb the person into cooperating, scaring people, messing with their psyche, dismantling their memory, not their memories, dismantling their souls. He was the first one for that to happen. Also in there are three men uh, who are accused of being the members of and a leader of Jamaat Islamiya, the South Asian group that was affiliated ultimately, Hambali led it with Al-Qaeda. It is the last 14 high-value detainees in the U.S. detention system from that era. And because of what was done to them and who they are, it is a secret. And I'm interested in it on several levels. One is, you know, structurally, they're American. You know, I sued Karen some years ago to find out who built it and how much we, the American taxpayers, paid for it. Went all the way through the courts. A FOIA suit? in a FOIA suit, yeah. and uh, the judge concluded that the price tag was properly classified and I wasn't entitled to it. We found no document, which means it's probably the CIA, of who built it. But you know, part of being a basic reporter is follow the money, understand who got the contracts. In the early days, parts of Guantanamo were built by a subsidiary of Halliburton, which sure. you know was Vice President Cheney's former company. So. I've been interested in Camp 7 structurally. It's sort of the mystery of it. 
at some point is frustrating as a reporter because I've seen lots of corners and crevices of Gitmo and have an understanding of how the prison operation works, but not Camp 7. Now, I think we talked about this. I wrote about Camp 7 earlier this year, and I spent a year um, pulling together bits of information about it that have come out in court transcripts, in court filings, in comments, spoken to people who know about Camp 7, spoken to people who've spoken to detainees who live at Camp 7 or are held at Camp 7, and put together a narrative that really got lost in the coronavirus crush of news about what life is like in there. I read it. So it's surprising because when I talk about what happened in the black sites, that continued to a certain degree at Gitmo of utter isolation, being kept alone in a cell, no other contact with human beings. At Gitmo, they eventually allowed people to go into recreation yards where on the other side of the tarp that you couldn't look through was another prisoner you could speak to. And so you had contact with one other prisoner. And it was isolating, disorienting. There still is, as best as I can tell, no meaningful treatment for victims of violence. Uh, yes, they are prisoners, and yes, they are accused of, or suspected of, or believed to be associated with horrific crimes, but there's no specific care for people who, uh, which of course the defense lawyers are very critical of. But the bottom line is, they spent years and years in isolation. They spent years having their meals passed through a slot in the door, like a supermax in the United States, of you know strict maximum security lockup. But in recent years, they've eased towards what is more like communal confinement at the rest of Guantanamo, which is prisoners are allowed to gather in groups inside a locked cell block and pray together at prayer time. They could go out to a rec yard, that's, which is really, best as I can tell, a chain link fenced enclosed enclosure and put down prayer rugs, which the Red Cross has provided, and pray together. Um, meals are now handed through a lock gate called the Sally Port, a locking series of locking gates that allows them to fetch their own food and dole it out in more communal style meals. They are required to go inside their cells four hours a day from two to four in the morning. And then it, it's often been from two to four in the afternoon, pull the door shut and the central locking system locks it and they are contained for those four hours, during which the guards can come onto the block, they can look around, they can take someone in shackles out of his cell and put him in another cell and, you know, shake down that cell to see what he's been doing in there and look through for weapons or contraband. And they have utter control during those four hours, and they have the ability to order them into their cells at any other time. But it is a communal confinement that is not what I would consider to be therapeutic in the classic sense. This is not, you know, group therapy for victims of torture, but it does allow people who've gone through years and years of isolation and emotional manipulation to develop a community, which of course is going to anger a lot of people who think, why should we be so nice to them? We should have taken them out and shot them long ago. And that is definitely an opinion. But, you know, the bottom line on this, and I I pointed out in the stories, this isn't really done for the convenience of the prisoners. It's done for the comfort of the guards who come and go in nine month rotations from civilian life. Some of them actually are, are, are police in small town police who join the National Guard in their state. But you know, they don't want to be caring for, managing, handling these men constantly. They don't like the friction of it. If there's a better way, which is to withdraw and keep them under you know, 24-7 surveillance, but allow less, um, le I mean, they work less. It, they still have to pay attention, but they're just not on their feet moving around as much. They're, they're using the technology and they prefer to not have to clean up after them and deliver them their food to them and bring them bottles of water. The prisoners come to the guards through a gate to get their bottle of water. So it's a, a style of detention that has evolved that I, un I understand from having seen it elsewhere, but I mean, I'm not the person who wants to go there and gawk at Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in his cell. Members of Congress have done that. Um, I'm not the person who wants to go 
and photograph the, you know, I'm not a photographer, you know, document them at prayer. But this is an important aspect of Gitmo. And in a way, Camp 7 may be the future of Gitmo. I don't mean the building, but there's 40 prisoners there. There's, someday the others may all leave, but the CIA prisoners probably are spending the rest of their lives there. So Camp 7 and Camp 7 style detention is the future, is, is the core meaning and responsibility of what Gitmo would be if it continues into you know the next 10 years or 20 years. I guess we shouldn't forget that it's all called Camp Justice. The story you tell about Camp 7 and the idea of Camp Justice where these men are being tried is just hard to understand. I mean, we, we, we haven't talked about this, but you know, they name things down there and it has meaning and it has meaning for them that may not make sense to us. Camp Justice, you know, people from the outside looking in, look at the stone and see me referring to the compound as Camp Justice. And they think it's a hoot, it's a joke, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. And the people down there, they just think they came up with a clever name, right? And, and it's stuck, it, it's a reference point right? Camp Justice. That's right. where the is. I think when you were down there, they were still correcting reporters for calling the captives prisoners instead of detainees. The soldiers, you know, are obsessed with the fact that, and I was corrected just recently by a new public affairs officer, you know, just arrived on the job and excited to be the spokesman for prison operations that it's a detention operation, not a prison. They are detainees, not prisoners, which begs the question, you know, Several of the detainees who are there, prisoners, were captured in 2001. Many of them got there in 2002. The last one arrived in 2008. You know, at what point is a detainee this sort of temporary status in this temporary war on terror? And at what point is it truly a war and they're war prisoners? probably the day they arrived, but they insisted on calling them enemy combatants and uh, un unprivileged belligerents. The use of language to make sure the laws don't apply. They're so angry at me because I named the guys who don't have trials and don't have, um, and aren't cleared to go forever prisoners. Forever there prisoners. people who are still angry at me for that. Well, it's the right term. They're forever if, prisoners. So this is the forever war, they are prisoners of it's these terms, forever prisoner, forever war, indefinite detention, all of these things that are, you know, not limited in time. I want to mention one thing before I get to my last question, which is that in addition to the tweet reporting that you've really made so essential to the outside understanding of Guantanamo and even the inside understanding of Guantanamo, there's something else you do that should be called attention to, which is that as the story continues to go on in its various chapters, you often put out or call attention to, in one way or another, prior stories you did that were three months old or a year old, sometimes even older, that are pertinent. And then you remind the readers how many times we've had this, the, the ultimate, you never say this, but the, the ultimate takeaway is we talked about this six years ago. We talked about this three years ago. We talked about this two months ago. And here it is again. And it's almost like this never ending cycle of repeating and repeating and repeating without any kind of resolution. I was just curious, like, did you have a model for that before you started it? How does that play out in terms of your thinking about techniques that you've decided to take on very successfully in reporting on Guantanamo? So along the theme of it, you know, this court has been in existence in one form or another for 15 years, and they're still debating. They still don't have an agreement on which aspects of the Constitution apply. So I am constantly writing about which part of the Constitution applies to Guantanamo. But I think what you're talking about is a function of social media, online journalism that is like tremendous, right? The ability to hyperlink, the ability to say, you want more deep divers? I you know, stepped back and explained this in 2010 and I went to the cemetery in 2006 and they won't let me see it today, but let me tell you what the cemetery looks like, why it's so interesting. Let me show you the first time they acknowledged Camp 7 and, they, and the, we learned in a whisper that there was something called 
Task Force Platinum. Sometimes all these years later, the stories haven't moved that much. And so uh, linking back to them has value. Um, I wanted to say one other thing because, um, you know, I am underwritten by the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, and they have given me a generous grant that started when I was at the Miami Herald with McClatchy and continued in my work at the Times. And what it says is more than the Times, more than the small national security community, but, you know, the foundation public, the grant making public, because the Pulitzer Center has also, you know, bundled the grants from other philanthropic organizations, believes that someone has to be watching Guantanamo. And they are making sure that that's possible as a full-time job. Uh, you know, the Times recognizes this and, you know, I'm thrilled to be there and I'm, the support is tremendous. But the Pulitzer Center allows not just me to go whenever I need to, which is as often as I can, but it gives me the ability to talk to journalists who are coming up about what I do, to go to classrooms, to do these webinars. I mean, I, I like talking about Gitmo. You and I can talk about it endlessly. But I think we both agree that we need wider listeners and people to think about these sort of profound issues of constitutional application and indefinite detention. And was it a war on terror? Are they POWs or are they criminals? Should the Pentagon be allowed to just close the doors and not let anyone look inside? Are these courts going to be truly accessible to people who care about it? All of those issues, I get to highlight it because of the work of the Pulitzer Center. It's important and, and kudos to them. And we could use more of them in more areas of, of shining a light. But for the world we're talking about now, it's transformational. Um, my last question, same question I ask everybody, but yours I'm going to direct a little bit. In the morass of what Guantanamo has become and what it says about ourselves, our society, and our inability to master in a timely and lawful fashion an issue that's been with us since 2001, do you see signs of hope? And in particular, do you see any possibility of Guantanamo closing? Uh -huh. So I'll do the second half first because got, I've got the the shtick. <laughs> Months after uh, President Obama said he was going to close Guantanamo, it, closing Guantanamo didn't mean closing Guantanamo. It meant moving Guantanamo. It meant picking up some of the population and moving them to the United States and continuing this status of prisoner of the war on terror, uh, enemy combatant. There was an original thought that maybe they could convert them all to, you know, civilian cases and figure out a way to uh, absorb them into the federal prison system or let them go. And that was dispatched a long time ago. So closing Guantanamo really means moving Guantanamo. So do I think that there's the possibility that when Congress decides that this isn't, you know, their favorite prison and it's maybe too expensive or someone at the Pentagon says we can use those troops better, that they create some form of Gitmo in the States, maybe if nobody's looking and it's not a campaign season. You know, um, people call it the third rail of American politics for a reason. You just run away from it. Remind us of the cost. Well, the cost, last time I crunched it, you know, I've been doing this for years where I have figured out the categories of publicly available, accessible expenditures, some which the Pentagon agrees with and some which they say, oh, that doesn't count. I tallied it up and came up with over $13 million per prisoner per year. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, honestly, if you got rid of the National Guard force and figured out a way to stabilize a smaller guard force or prison detention center, you could probably bring it way down. Really, $13 million per prisoner is a huge part of that, is paying for the rotation of guards who need to be amused, taken care of, housed, trained, put in uniforms, taken out of their civilian life and put back there. The rotation's incredibly expensive. Over $100,000 to keep a guard there for nine months. So closing Guantanamo, possible, but you know, politics suggests people don't care about that money. They're fine with it. They don't, it, the, 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 I, I do the money comparisons because I think it's important to understand what a unwieldy, process this is. It gives you a window into all sorts of aspects of the prison operation that they pr prefer people don't know. 
So the thing about optimism, you know, this has been a very difficult year in terms of covering that prison. Some people think it's a reflection of the polarization of America and the messaging from the top that the media is to be disrespected and our role isn't valued. And it's been a hard year to cover it. You know, the Admiral down there has never even been willing to do a meet and greet. The head of the base. He's in charge of the prison. He's been there for over a year. I met every other prison commander, both in a, you know, off the record setting to introduce myself and sort of get to know each other and explain myself, explain why I do what I do, tell him, I've always been mad, tell him that if he ever hears something about me that he thinks is troubling about what I've done, he should pick up the phone and I'm sure there's another version of that story and that he should explore it. I've seen him in the dining room at the fine dining restaurant in Guantanamo Bay with his family, and he's never even allowed sort of a, hi, how are you, which is extraordinary to me. It's just not the way military commanders behave. Anyways, a dark year. I think that the what has gone on in, and this is probably going to surprise you, what has gone on in the past month or so in terms of demonstrations, and activism in America and the call-up of the National Guard in spurts to address the unrest and the unhappiness and to pit sort of the citizen soldiers against the citizen protesters and dissidents and demonstrators. I think that what's happened in the last few few weeks, I hope that's what happened in the last few weeks, is that there's been a phenomenon that is recognized that the military is us. We are the military. They are our military, particularly the National Guard. They're our neighbors. They live in civilian life. They are called up to do unpleasant and unfair at times jobs. And they know it. And Perhaps as long as we're calling up these National Guard people to Gitmo, they will be entitled to have a little bit more empathy or understanding or access to the people who want to tell their stories. That, that you know, you can hide those National Guard troops in trailer parks and townhouses down at Gitmo. You can gag them and restrict them to quarters and pretend that they're not there. But at the end of the day, they serve us. The Pentagon is the people. That prison belongs not to the admirals and the generals and the Pentagon. It is America's prison and it is America's court. And just like the unhappiness in the streets, it's ours. We own it. We should think about it. We don't have to agree on it, but people should be entitled to express their pride or satisfaction or unhappiness, I mean, within reason, I don't want them, you know, sacrificing national security, but hiding them away seems to me to be a mistake. And maybe there's something transformational going on in America that, that recognizes more than ever that the military is ours. It is the 1%. They love to, you know, talk about how they're the 1%, but they're, they're us. They're people who chose to do this job for, for uh, in many instances, honorable re reasons, and they should be allowed to behave honorably. When they tell their stories, they're going to yeah. tell them to you, and you'll get to write it. So I can't wait to read it. So let me close just in saying thank you. For me personally, thank you for being able to, to show me more about Guantanamo than I could ever know so that I could think about it. Thank you for being the eyes and ears for all of us. But let me tell you who's going to thank you the most. History. Your work is going to live forever as the story of Guantanamo. So that means you have to stay there until it closes. I'm just letting you know. So <laughs> I will have you back though when that happens. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. 
In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interests online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.